I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we use all of Scripture to gain insight into the depth and meaning that God has for each one of us. Now the book of Leviticus is broken up into four primary aspects of worship. Four topics that Israel needs to know before they can begin to truly worship the God who had delivered them from slavery. Up until now, we've covered the first two aspects of worship. The first aspect being the topic of sacrifice. And sacrifice as a whole reveals the ways of God being in relationship to God. How we can relate to this God that is so far beyond us. And those ways are easily summed up as we examine each of the sacrifices that are described in the opening chapters of Leviticus. Leviticus 1 is the Ola offering, an offering where an entire animal was to be burnt on the altar. This sacrifice revealing an attitude of fear or awe that must precede a person as they begin to draw near to God. Now, to many this seems inappropriate, as God is supposed to be loving and caring, and the idea of fearing Him seems contrary to this idea of love. But in the book of Esther, we get an excellent picture of what this combination of ideas looks like in practice. Esther, the queen of Persia, married to and loved by the king, had not been summoned to the king in some time. When she discovers the plot against the Jews that the king is unwittingly part of, she knows that she needs to see him, but there's a problem. The law says that anyone who appears before the king unsummoned was to be put to death. And so Esther was gripped by a healthy fear of the one that she loved and that loved her. This is the same type of fear that should be the root of all of our dearings with Hashem. And it is this type of fear that is represented in the Olah sacrifice. God can legitimately and justly kill us at any time that we enter into his presence. His holiness and his justice give him the right to do so. And so in recognition of this, the worshiper gives all of something precious to him. Leviticus 2 is the mincha offering, the word mincha meaning a gift or a tribute. This offering once again encompasses the idea of relationship to a king and the concept of tribute that was to be offered to a king in recognition of what the king has done on our behalf. But this offering also encompasses the idea of giving a gift to an intimate partner, such as a spouse. Leviticus 3 tells us of the Shlomim offering, the most versatile way to come near to God. The Shlomim, the peace or fellowship offering. This is an offering of friendship, a shared meal with others who share an affinity towards each other. And the Shlomim reveals this close relationship in many ways. First through thanksgiving. This subset of the Shlomim is designed to be a time of praise to God 
An animal is killed and cooked, and a large group of people come together into God's house and eat and share of what God has done for them. Then there's the vow offering in the same way. It's for a large gathering of people to come together and to share a meal. This time, rather than in an attitude of thanksgiving and praise, rather because someone is making a promise to do something. And all those around, including Hashem, are to then act as witnesses for their friend, to help to keep them to their word. And then there's the voluntary shlemim, the offering that's given just because we want to share a meal with the one closest with us. Leviticus 4 then tells of the chat'at, or the sin sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that cleans up after us because we, as humans, we have a sinful nature that pollutes the places that we go, which we're going to see very clearly today. It is this nature that prevents us from drawing close to him because it is a nature of death. But the sin sacrifice acts as a detergent for the uncleanness that we drag everywhere with us. And the sin sacrifice is what cleans the pathway between God and man. And then in Leviticus 5 is the Asham sacrifice. This is an apology sacrifice. It is the recognition that we have transgressed the instructions of our king, and so we need to make restitution for the offense. While the sin sacrifice covers our sin nature, the guilt sacrifice covers our commission of sin, generally. Um, as we discovered in that episode, it's not quite so clean-cut as that, but we're going to run with that for now. And then in the next few chapters of Leviticus, we read of each of these sacrifices in various ways, culminating in the ordination of the priesthood, the inauguration of the tabernacle, the death of two of the newly appointed priests, and it closes with an improper execution of the sacrifice that is yet still acceptable before Hashem. Now in Leviticus 11, the topic of uncleanness that has been spoken of earlier, it's expanded to become the focus for the next few chapters. And as we explored this topic over the last two weeks, we discovered that uncleanness is the result of our sin nature, the nature of death that is part of our existence as human. And for the five chapters on uncleanness, we discovered that in every case, the uncleanness that's being described is a close association with death. But we also discovered that for the majority of uncleanness, there is a process of wash and wait that is needed before the person can resume their relationship with God. And even with each other in many cases. In a few cases of uncleanness, the special circumstances of life, such as birth, recovery from certain forms of sickness and disease, there is a little bit more that's required. And in nearly every one of these instances, a sin sacrifice is required to accomplish two things. One, to cleanse the holy things of the uncleanness of the people, and to make atonement for both the items and the people who are steeped in uncleanness. This week we come to Leviticus 16, and if we look at Leviticus thematically, this chapter is the central point of the entire book. Everything in the book revolves around this chapter, and in this chapter we're going to see those two previous topics on clear display. Sacrifice and uncleanness are both addressed through this ritual, which contains so much meaning and application even today. And as we're going to see, the last two major divisions of Leviticus are also contained in this chapter. But first, let's read, and then let's discuss the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 16 And Hashem spoke to Moshe after the death of the two sons of Aaron, as they drew near before Hashem and died. And Hashem said to Moshe, 
Speak to Aaron your brother not to come in at all times to the set-apart place inside the veil, before the lid of atonement, which is on the ark, lest he die, because I appear in the cloud above the lid of atonement. With this, Aaron should come into the set-apart place, with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering, and of a ram as an ascending offering. He should put on the set-apart linen long shirt with linen trousers on his flesh, and gird himself with a linen girdle, and be dressed with the linen turban. They are set-apart garments, and he shall bathe his body in water, and shall put them on. And from the congregation of the children of Israel he takes two male goats as a sin offering, and one ram as an ascending offering. And Aaron shall bring the bull as an sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house. And he shall take the two goats, and let them stand before Hashem at the door of the tent of appointment. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Hashem, and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the lot for Hashem fell, and shall prepare it as a sin offering. But on the goat which is the lot for Azazel fell, is caused to stand alive before Hashem, to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness to Azazel. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself, and make atonement for him, and for his house, and shall slay the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. And shall take a fire holder filled with burning coals of fire from the altar before Hashem, with his hands filled with sweet incense beaten fine, and shall bring it inside the veil. And he shall put the incense on the fire before Hashem, and the cloud of incense shall cover the lid of atonement which is on the witness, lest he die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the lid of atonement. On the east side, also, in front of the lid of atonement, he sprinkles some of the blood with his finger seven times. And he shall slay the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and shall bring its blood inside the veil, and shall do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the lid of atonement, and in front of the lid of atonement. And he shall make atonement for the set-apart place, because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, and because of their transgression and all their sins. So he does for the tent of appointment which is dwelling with them in the midst of their uncleanness. And no man should be in the tent of appointment when he goes in to make atonement in the set-apart place, until he comes out, and he shall make atonement for himself, and for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. And he shall go out to the altar that is before Hashem, and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and set it apart from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. And when he has finished atoning for the set-apart place, and the tent of appointment, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and shall confess over it all of the crookednesses of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, and shall put them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a fit man. And the goat shall bear on itself all the crookednesses to a land cut off. Thus he shall send the goat away into the wilderness." Aaron shall then come into the tent of appointment, and shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the set-apart place, and shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in the set-apart place, and shall put on his garments, and shall come out and prepare his ascending offering, and the ascending offering of the people, to make atonement for himself and for the people, and burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. And he who sent away the goat to Azazel washes his garments, and shall bathe his body with water, and afterward he comes into the camp. But the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the set-apart place, is brought outside the camp, and they shall burn their skins and their flesh and their dung with fire. And he who burns them washes his garments, and shall bathe his body in water, and afterward he comes into the camp.
and this shall be for you a law forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you afflict your beings, and you do no work, the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on the day he makes atonement for you to cleanse you, to be clean from all your sin before Hashem. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you shall afflict your beings, a law forever. And the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement and shall put on the linen garments and the set-apart garments. And he shall make atonement for the most set-apart place, and make atonement for the tent of appointment, and for the altar, and make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be for you a law forever, to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did as Hashem commanded Moshe. Now, as we open up to chapter 16, the first thing that we read about is the events of chapter 10, the death of Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron that attempted to approach Hashem and did so improperly and then paid the ultimate price for doing so. Now, one question that's been brought up for many millennia is why did the book of Leviticus take this five chapter detour into uncleanness just to get to chapter 16 and remind us to take us back to chapter 10? To many, this is an indication that the chapters on uncleanness are relatively unimportant. They can be skipped over as we read the book of Leviticus and as we deal with the truly important topics. I disagree. Leviticus 16 as a whole deals with all of the topics that have been introduced up to this point. Sacrifice, priesthood, drawing near to God properly, and yes, Leviticus 16 deals with uncleanness as well. This opening, in my opinion, is to draw the reader back to the previous topics and put them fresh in our minds alongside the topic of uncleanness that we just read, not as a replacement of the topic of uncleanness, but as a corollary to uncleanness. Now, what is really fascinating is that the opening verse of this chapter it also serves to connect us to the next topic in Leviticus that we're going to begin next week, holiness. God is holy, and so coming before him in just any time, in just any way, will result in death. There is a procedure to follow when approaching God. One does not simply waltz into his presence, just as Esther was in very serious danger from just waltzing into the presence of the king because of the holiness of his position. And when we continue on in the chapter, we find that this chapter delves into the final topic of the book of Leviticus near the middle and the end of the chapter, and that is communal worship practices. As the Day of Atonement is one of the festivals that we're going to cover in chapter 23, but it's also the day that is the Jubilee is declared in chapter 25. Yom Kippur is very central to the book of Leviticus. This chapter truly does serve as the linchpin for the rest of the book as it brings together all four of the primary topics in Leviticus. And as such, we should pay very close attention to this chapter. Now, the Day of Atonement is one of the seven festival days that we will read of in Leviticus 23, as I just stated. And this day begins conspicuously, as this is the one day of the year that the high priest is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies and into the presence of God. In preparation of this special moment, the priest must prepare himself. The first thing that must happen is that he is to wash with water. Now, a bath is a simple thing, as it removes any potential uncleanness from the high priest before he enters into God's presence. Then, the high priest has to lower himself a bit. When the high priest goes before the Most High God, the regalia of the office that separates him from the rest of the priesthood is to be removed. 
and the high priest becomes, for the day, simply a priest. No longer does he wear the breastplate, no longer does he wear the mitre and the ephod and the rest. Simple linen garments are the order for the day. This change of clothing is a simple act of humility on the part of the high priest, as his status is lowered before he enters into the presence of the one who is above all else. The high priest must be willing to humble himself before God. And then a list of sacrifices is given that the high priest should bring. First, there's a bull as a sin offering. This is the sacrifice that cleanses the holy things from the tabernacle and makes atonement for the high priest before he is able to make atonement for anyone else. A ram as an ascending offering. The proper attitude to have when entering in before the God who has just killed his sons was one of fear. And the Ola sacrifice demonstrates just that. Then there are two goats that are part of a unique ritual that occurred on the Day of Atonement. One goat for Hashem and the other for Azazel. Now, the one for Azazel is usually translated in most translations as the scapegoat. And the way that these goats were chosen is by casting lots. Now, if there's one thing that is true, it's that no one really knows what the word Azazel really means. If we break down the word, it's a combination of two words, but which two? There's Az, which means goat, and Azal, which means to go away. Or there's Azaz, which means strength, and El, which is God. So is it the goat which goes away, or the strength of God? Eh, I, I tend to go with the first one. Az, the goat which goes away. So the most basic meaning of this is the goat that goes away, the escape goat. Get it? Well, if we look to Judaism of the past, and even the present, this word takes on a whole new realm of meaning. The book of Enoch, which was written at the best guess around 200 BC, it's not scripture in and of itself, but it gives us insight into the thoughts of the first century Judaism, into the second temple period Judaism. This book lists Azazel as the first of the fallen angels that convinced the rest of the angels to follow him. Now, this book, not scripture, as I said, gives us insight into the thoughts of the 2nd century BC Jews. In later Jewish writings, Azazel then becomes a character that is the personification of uncleanness. In demonology, that's been built up over the centuries, and Azazel becomes the chief of the Searim, the goat demons that Israel and the other nations would offer sacrifices to. But if we turn to scholarly sources, there is no consensus on any of this. I tend to take the stance that this word refers to a personality of some sort. And my reason for this is the way that the Hebrew is phrased. Lot 1 for Hashem, Lot 1 for Azazel. Now we consider Hashem to be a personality that one of the goats is being given to, and so it makes sense that the other option is also a personality. But again, that's just my opinion, and I really don't want to get bogged down in all of this, as all that anyone has on this point is opinions. Regardless, one goat was to be offered to Hashem as a sin offering, while the other goat was to be set loose in the wilderness, bearing the crookedness of the people of Israel. Now in verse 11, the ceremony of Yom Kippur kicks into full gear. Aaron first slaughters the bull, that is the sin offering, for himself. And then, with some incense accompanying him, he enters into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkles some of the blood of the sin offering on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant seven times. 
The one time that the high priest comes into the presence of God was not to have a powwow or some sort of mystical experience, but rather it was to act as a janitor. His whole purpose for entering into the Holy of Holies and coming before God was to cleanse the ark from uncleanness. Let that sink in. Then Aaron was to slay the goat of the sin offering that was for the people. This is the goat that was chosen by Lot, and with this goat, Aaron was to make atonement. Atonement for what, though? Well, first of all, for the Ark of the Covenant, and then to make atonement for the holy place, and finally to make atonement for the brazen altar in the courtyard. Great, he made atonement, but what exactly is atonement? Well, I'm glad you asked. This is a word that we've read several times already in the course of the book of Leviticus, and so let's take a moment and discuss the idea of atonement. What is atonement? Well, the word used for atonement is kafar, and we find it used in various ways in Scripture. Noah kafars the ark with pitch in Genesis 6. In Psalm 65.3 and 79.9, we see the word translated as purge in the King James Version, forgive in the NET, and cover in the TS 2009 and ESV, and in the TLV, it's simply atone. Isaiah 28.18 uses the word kafar in the context of annulling a treaty. Isaiah 28.18 says, And your covenant with death has been annulled, and your vision with Sheol not stand. When an overflowing scourge passes through, then you shall be trampled down by it. Isaiah 47.11 translates this word as to put off or to delay something. But evil shall come upon you, you not knowing from where it arises, and trouble fall upon you, you not being able to put it off to kafar. And ruin come upon you suddenly, which you know not. Or Proverbs 16.14, which uses the word in the context of pacifying anger. Proverbs 16.14, the king's wrath is a messenger of death, but a wise man appeases it, or kafars it. A similar word, kafar, it's not said any differently, but it is a different word. It's used to describe a walled or protected village. The word kofar, whose root is kafar, is used in Exodus 21.30 and 30.12 and 1 Samuel 12.3 and Amos 5.12, twice in Job, three times in Proverbs, Isaiah, and more. They use this word to describe a ransom or a bribe that's being paid. This word translated as a tone, it comes from a root that means to cover, and I think that's an excellent translation. The English word cover has a multitude of definitions and uses. And I believe all of these can be demonstrated to be definitions for the word kafar in the scripture. So the word cover, it can be used in a military or a sports context, right? Such as cover me while I move or cover the linebacker or make sure you cover the goal, etc. This is the same way that we saw it used with walled cities in the context as a, as a shield, something to, to block something from coming in. It can mean to insure as a compensation for a loss, such as in this policy covers accidental loss. The idea of a bribe can be similar to this, as a bribe is a payment to insure success or to cover a loss. It can mean to make a provision by means of a reserve or a deposit. 
your balance was insufficient to cover the cost. I think this is the use of the word as it's used in the word ransom. Now it can mean the word cover in English can mean to conceal, such as to cover your legs or to cover up a scandal. This definition of the word in English is one that goes a bit too far. In a minute, we're going to look at a Hebrew word that specifically means to conceal a thing. Kafar in Hebrew does not carry the ideal of concealing something, even though it does mean to cover in all of these other aspects. So the word cover can mean to spread over something, such as snow-covered hills, or Noah covered the ark with pitch. The word kafar can mean a lid or a topper, such as cover the pot, or in the Hebrew, the ark's lid is called the kipparet, the cover. It can mean to defray a cost or to pay on behalf of someone else. I'll, I will cover your expense or I'll cover your tab. And it can also mean to invest with a particular quality, such as he covered himself in glory. So as you can see, the English word cover and the Hebrew word kafar which is the origin of our English word cover, have many of the same meanings and fundamental ideas attached to them. So in the case of sacrificial atonement, we have a few options. The most likely, I think, is to simply defray a cost to ransom, purge, or forgive. Which one should be applied to this word in this context? Uh, frankly, I'm not sure it matters. It's something that is needed but it's also something that has been accomplished for us at this point in history. As we'll find out that each one of these ideas, each one of these definitions of kafar, is something that Yeshua accomplished on our behalf. For example, our ransom is paid, Matthew 20, 27-28, And whoever wishes to be first among you, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Acts 20, verse 28, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the assembly of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. Or 1 Timothy 2, 6, Who gave himself as a ransom for all to be witnessed in its own season. He also provides a hedge of protection from the death or protection from the wrath that we so rightly deserve. Romans 5, 8-9, But God proves his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. Much more than having now been declared right by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. He covers our sins so that we are no longer reckoned toward us. Romans 4, 7-8, Blessed are those whose lawlessnesses are forgiven, and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom Hashem shall by no means reckon sin. He cleanses and wipes away our sin as the Day of Atonement did for a short time. 1 John 1, seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua the Messiah his Son cleanses us from all sin. And Hebrews 9.14 How much more shall the blood of Messiah, who through the everlasting Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve, the living God. Did the Day of Atonement forgive sins? No. Not eternally as the blood of Yeshua could or can. 
It did cover in multiple ways the sin for a time, which allowed the presence of Hashem to continue to dwell in the midst of the people. Now that one aspect of the word cover that the word kafar does not include is the idea of concealment. In verse 13 of chapter 16 of Leviticus, in most of our translations, we read that the incense covered the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that Aaron would not die when he entered. The word used for cover here is kesa or kasa. This word means to cover, as in to conceal or to make something unseen. The smoke of the incense would fill up the space in the holy place, which would then conceal from view the ark. Atonement on the Day of Atonement did not conceal, and it did not remove what a person has done. But it does provide the means that allows God to pardon the offense that has been committed. And the atonement that was accomplished here was for the express purpose of cleansing the place of God from uncleanness, as well as the people of God. The perfect atonement of this age, however, is something that was affected through the blood of Yeshua in the heavenlies, which allows for sin to be removed forever. Well, after the ceremony of the cleansing of the holy things in the tabernacle, then the live goat is brought to Aaron. And here is the place where many make the connection to the laying on of hands, to the idea of confessing sins, as this is what was done over the head of the live goat. So the idea is that the confession of sins, any time that you read the laying on of hands in the sacrificial system throughout Leviticus, that there is an implied confession of sins that is also occurring at that time. And then the live goat is led away into the wilderness, bearing the sins of the people. Now it's at this point that Aaron resumes this role as the high priest. He goes into the holy place, he takes off his clothes, he washes, and he puts on the high priest's garments that were his usual clothing while serving in the tabernacle. Then Aaron comes out, and the ceremony with the people is accomplished. The ascending offerings are offered, the sin offering is offered. The final parts of the ceremony include cleaning up from the day's events. The man who led the goat into the wilderness is required to wash as well before he can re-enter the camp. Likewise, the bull that had its suet offered as the sin offering is to have its carcass taken outside the camp and burned. And the man who does this is also to wash himself before re-entry into the camp. In verse 29, the topic shifts to the communal festival aspect of the day. Every year on the tenth day of the seventh Hebrew month is the Day of Atonement. And at this time you are to afflict your nefesh. Now it is from this phrase to afflict your nefesh that the idea of fasting at Yom Kippur is arrived at. And this becomes very clear when you discover that the most basic meaning of the word nefesh is literally throat. And from this meaning, this word then takes on many other meanings, but the most foundational is a person's throat. Afflict your throat? Fasting. Got it? We're going to see this very clear in just a moment. And then in verse 30, we discover that it is on this day that the atonement and the cleaning occurred, that Israel is free of all of their sins before Hashem. And it is on this day that the entire community is clean before Hashem. And in this way, the day of atonement is a day of rest. If unleavened bread is a time of spring cleaning for us, then the day of atonement is a time of fall cleaning of the places and the people of God. And in verse 31, we see something that's a bit unique. The Day of Atonement is 
a Sabbath. Now, usually throughout the year, during the festivals, we encounter days in which no work is to be done, and we ascribe to them the term Sabbath on these days. High Sabbaths, we usually call them. But in Scripture, they're not called Sabbath. Only one of the festivals is ever called a Sabbath, and that is Yom Kippur. The rest of the days are simply days without work. Now, when we get to Leviticus 23, we will cover the difference in a Sabbath and a day without work. For now, we just need to know that Yom Kippur is a Sabbath, while the rest of the festivals are not a Sabbath. So, that's all pretty cool, right? The Day of Atonement, it's a great day. We are to fast and we are to afflict ourselves. But this is a day that was accomplished for us through the blood of Yeshua. What meaning does this day have for the rest of us as believers now? Well, the simple fact is that when it comes to the Day of Atonement, we look to this day as a day of personal righteousness. We fast, we study, we learn, we read prayers or books of the Bible. But that's kind of where we end. We sit at home, we do nothing for the day, or we go to a church or a synagogue for the whole day. We can't work, right? So what else is there to do? The problem with this view is that it makes the Day of Atonement into a time that is personal, and we rarely allow others in or even consider others on this day. And this is one of the issues that we face as the body of Messiah. Too often, we make our salvation, our walk, and our relationship with God all about ourselves. Personal righteousness is the key, and if we have that, well, then we have everything that we might want or need. No need to do any more than this, other than to go help others to find their way to their own personal righteousness. But the walk of a believer is not limited to personal righteousness. When we only proclaim or hear a message of how individuals can get right with God and how to develop a personal relationship with a loving Heavenly Father who wants us to live in purity, we miss half of the message. There is another part to the life of the believer. We should have a public outward thrust of mercy and compassion to the world, one that takes opportunities to visibly demonstrate the power and relevancy of the gospel to a world that is in desperate need of the gospel. We tend to focus on righteousness. Others tend to focus only on justice, mercy, and compassion. But we have to be focused on both. Yeshua states it this way in Matthew twenty-three, twenty-three: Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! because you tithe the mint, the anise, and the cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, the justice, the compassion, and the faith. These need to have been done without neglecting the others. We, as a church, we've gotten really good at personal, individual righteousness. We tithe, many of us eat clean, we celebrate certain days, we don't harm others. But have we neglected the weightier matters, the justice, compassion, and faith, projecting Hashem's image into a world in darkness? Or how about this story, Matthew nineteen sixteen through 22 And see, one came to him and said, Good teacher, what good shall I do to have everlasting life? And he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, God. But if you wish to enter into life, guard the commands. And he said to him, Which? 
And Yeshua said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, respect your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what has Yeshua described up to this point is personal righteousness. The man considers his righteousness to be up to snuff, but he suspects it's still falling short, and so he continues to push. In verse 20, the young man said to him, All these I have watched over from my youth, what do I still lack? Yeshua said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell what you have, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard the word, he went away sad, because he had many possessions. When the man asked the question, Yeshua responds, not with more things that he can easily do to make himself right. Yeshua shifts the focus here and he says, sell what you have and give to the poor. In essence, go and practice mercy, compassion, and love. Take your personal achievement of righteousness and now work to project that outward by practicing the character of Hashem. And it is here that we fall short when we view the Day of Atonement as a personal day to draw close to God or to get right with Him. Isaiah speaks on this in chapter 58. We're going to go through the entire Isaiah 58. I recommend that you pause this right now and you go and read the entirety of Isaiah 58 before continuing. I'll give you a moment. Pause now and go read Isaiah 58. Welcome back. So Isaiah 58 is commonly made out to be referencing the weekly Sabbath. And I think that's a failure of recognizing the context of the chapter. So let's look through the context of the chapter. The chapter opens with the declaration of the sins and transgressions of the people. Verse 2 speaks that they delight in drawing near to God. Verse 3, why have we fasted and you did not see? It then continues, why have we afflicted our nefesh and you took no notice? Verse 5, it then says, is it a day that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his nefesh? The language that opens up Isaiah 58 is very specifically Day of Atonement language that we see clearly here in Leviticus 16. Drawing near to God, fasting, afflicting our nefesh, declaring our sins before God, all of these are Yom Kippur ideas. And so what follows should help us to understand the deeper application of the Day of Atonement. The remainder of the chapter is then broken up into three if-then statements, and in each one the focus is removed from personal righteousness that was described in the beginning of a chapter, and the focus is put on using this as a day to practice justice and mercy. Verse 6 through 7 is the first if. This if is, isn't specifically stated, but it follows with a then, and so the if is implied. So Isaiah 58, 6 through 7, it says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, to loosen the tight cords of wrongness, to undo the bands of the yoke, to exempt the oppressed, and to break off every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? The Day of Atonement is a day of freedom. It's the loosing of chains, the casting off of yokes, the loosening of cords of transgression that hold us back. It's a day for executing mercy and compassion, because it is on this day that Hashem shows immense compassion on us. 
Then in verse 8 through 9a, it says, Then your light would break forth like the morning, your healing spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The honor of Hashem would be your rear guard. Then when you call, Hashem would answer, and when you cry, he would say, Here I am. The second if is then found in verse 9b through 10a. It says, If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of unrighteousness, if you extend your being to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted being. The second then in verse 10b through 12, Then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness be as noon. Then Hashem would guide you continually and satisfy your being in drought and strengthen your bones. And you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you would be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you use this time of affliction to satisfy the one who is afflicted and in hunger, then you will rise up and be made strong and given power to go forth. You will be watered and taken care of. The third if is then found in verse 13. If you do not turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and you shall call the Sabbath a delight, the set-apart day of Hashem, Honored, and you shall honor it, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then, in the third then, in verse 14, Then you shall delight yourself in Hashem, and I shall cause you to ride on the heights of the earth, and I shall feed you with the inheritance of Jacob your father. For the mouth of Hashem has spoken. The Day of Atonement is a day of release and freedom for all. And it is God's expectation that we take this day and we make it a day of release for others. We as believers in the God of Israel, we recognize that we do not live by bread alone, as it says in Deuteronomy 8. We live by the word of God. But there are many in our world who are legitimately hungry and are in need of lifting up. Should Yom Kippur perhaps become a day of service? A day when we take the food that we would have eaten and we give it to someone who is in legitimate need of food? Should we stop making Yom Kippur about ourselves and our personal individual standing before God? Should we instead make Yom Kippur about the heart and the character of God on that day? And what is the character of God? Well, we read it several months ago in Exodus 34, 6-7. And Hashem passed before him and proclaimed, Hashem, Hashem, a God compassionate and showing grace, patient and great in loving kindness and truth, watching over loving kindness for thousands, forgiving crookedness and transgression and sin, but by no means leaving unpunished visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Compassion, grace, patience, loyalty, and faithfulness. These are the character traits of God. 
And on this day when God extends his compassion to his people in the form of cleaning away sins and allowing one representative of of us to come into his presence, instead of sitting around and simply soaking it in, are we to take this mercy, compassion, and forgiveness which he has shown us on this day and allow it to trickle down to those who have no hope or comfort, those who have no experience of mercy or compassion or justice? If we can do this, if we can practice both personal righteousness and outward justice, we may find that God blesses us beyond all that we can hope or wish. As Isaiah says, our light will shine forth like the morning, and our healing will spring up in our midst speedily. We, as the people of God, we have only a few days left before Yom Kippur. I ask you to consider these words. To consider Isaiah 58 in light of our practice of Yom Kippur and see if we can discover a way to use this day not just to afflict ourselves, but to use this day to lift up the life of another who is in a place of constant affliction. As Isaiah says, if we do this, our feet will be firmly planted on the path of life, which is a really good place to be as we derish chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to seeklifesc.com. That's seeklifesc.com. We'll see you again next time as we derish chai, as we seek life. Shalom.